stand with me? And we're going to read uh, today's passage. <clears throat> we're going to stay on that slide for a while because we're a slide ahead, just so you know. Uh, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And that's it. Have a seat. <laughs> you know what? Let's pray. Father God, I just ask in Jesus' name. Um, that each of us is ready this morning uh, to receive what your word has for us. I thank you, Father, for the beautiful reality of unity that you have given the church. And I ask that you will help us to understand uh, what that means today. By the time we leave here, help us to be on the same page. Lord, help us to be uh, one in heart and soul. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so it's not often that I preach a sermon on just half of a verse, right? Uh, in fact, I think, I think one time I preached a, a sermon on one verse. Um, that I can remember anyway, and that was uh, Mark 1.1, and that was years and years ago. Um, but I'll tell you, that's a whole sermon right there, Mark 1.1. Um, but that's what, that's what we're going to do today. There, there's a whole lot just crammed into this little text. And if we, if we continued reading, we would have some specific examples of what this looked like in a particular context. Okay? Um, however, we're going to get into that next week. We're not going to get into that today. We're not going to look at the specific examples today. Today, uh, I want us to, to focus on the first part of verse 32 and see what it can mean to you and what it can mean to me in a more general sense, a more general application as Christ followers. So we're going to pick apart these 14 words. Uh, well, 13, actually, because the word now is more or less continuing on from the description from verse 31. I'm, I'm happy to be back in Acts 4, by the way, um, because they're talking about... The apostles were filled with boldness to speak God's word. That's what, how verse 31 ends. And Luke's narration moves from the apostles there to the full number of those who were identified as a part of this new movement. Okay, At this point, they were not called Christians yet. That didn't even come until Acts 11. Okay, At this point, they were called followers of the way. All right, And this English phrase... The full number. It's actually just one word in Greek, and it literally translates as multitude. Multitude. Crowd. Okay? Remember how many people had joined their number at this point. I don't know if you guys remember that, but at this point, there are about 5,000 men. And then, of course, women and children galore. That, for some reason, it's patriarchal society. They only counted men. But So there's a, there's a pretty significant number of people at this point. And they're referred to by Luke as the multitude, but it's not just any multitude, okay? It's a multitude that has one big thing in common. It is made up of all of those fitting the following description, okay? And whatever, whatever comes next in the sentence, that's, that's pretty self-explanatory, right? But it's important that we realize this isn't just any group of people, but it's one that has a common denominator that sets them apart, Okay? They're separate from everyone else because of this particular quality. The multitude that Luke is speaking about here is comprised entirely of those who have believed. Those who have believed. And this is an important distinction because they had other traits that we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks. And one, one big characteristic that we're building up to is the main point of today's message. But those those who believed, or literally those having believed, were the subject of this sentence. Now, what would be one of our words for those having believed? What would we call those people? 
saved believers, okay? We might say Christians today. Um, it's, it, the, the problem with, with referring to uh, Christians is sometimes we use it as an adjective instead of a noun. Like maybe we, we refer to Christian music or, or Christian books. Um, and and I, I struggle with that a little bit because a book can't be redeemed and justified and sanctified. And you understand what I'm saying there. So uh, it, it, we have to be careful about how we use that as an adjective rather than a noun. But we're going to talk about that more when we get to Acts 11, which is probably what next year. So um, you'll have forgotten by then. Um, believer, though, is typically used to describe a person having believed. Like that song by the monkeys. You remember that song? Then I saw her face. You, you, you know that, right? Okay, so, so that's, now I'm a believer. So obviously, we're talking about a whole group of people who believed in something in common, and it was only in common to them at this particular point. Okay? And that was they believed in Jesus as the Messiah, crucified and resurrected. They believed in Jesus as the Messiah, crucified and resurrected. That's the belief that drew them all together. And bear in mind, at this point, everyone who was a follower of the way was Jewish to begin with. Okay, They, they had all been raised under the law. They all had the expectation of the Messiah that was to come and that he was going to come and save Israel, you know. And so they, were, they weren't strangers to this idea of, of a Messiah or certainly not of the biblical God. However, through the conviction and the revelation of the Holy Spirit, they had come to faith that Jesus was the Messiah. Okay, But he had come as a, as a suffering servant instead of as that conquering hero that they'd all expected. Now, before we go any, any further, I, I want to clarify that, especially here like in Acts chapter 4, a person who believed wasn't just someone who said they believed because they had prayed a little prayer. You know, once or because maybe they walked down the aisle at church camp or they cried. No, I mean, obviously they were Jewish and they had received the Holy Spirit. OK, but there were also certain characteristics that the believers shared, which could be witnessed by others as evidence that they were part of those having believed. And I, I think it's important to mention those even briefly. OK, so that we don't lose sight of the fact that that the early Christians had expectations for those who professed faith. And just as we should today, we should also have expectations. Firstly, anyone who is truly a believer was repentant. Repentant, meaning, okay, that they had experienced a change of mind towards sin and God. They'd, they'd been convicted of their sin by the Holy Spirit, okay, and they had turned away from sin and turned toward God. And so this, this inner change would have been evident in the resultant behavior. Anybody watching should say, I can see a difference in that person. They were repentant. Secondly, a person considered part of the believers would have been immersed as a sign of following Christ. Okay? Now, the Bible doesn't explicitly say that, but we have every indication in the book of Acts to believe that baptism by immersion was the first act of obedience that was committed by a person with repentant faith. And on top of that, this was the apostles themselves. The apostles are leading this group of believers. Remember, Jesus himself instructed them to make disciples. And what was the first thing he said? To make disciples, you what? Baptize them. And that word is immerse in Greek. 
baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Okay? So there's no good reason for us to, to believe that anyone in the early church would have been considered a part of the body if they were refusing to be baptized. It's real simple. Thirdly, all of those having believed would have been engaged in the life of the church. I want to explain that just a little bit, okay? This, this is a huge category, and it's fleshed out a lot more in the, in the book of Acts. So we're not going to go too deeply into it today, but it's vital that we grasp the concept, okay? That the church is the body of Christ, and no body part survives by itself, right? You can't take out a, a heart or a, a brain or a liver and just set it down, and it's going to run all by itself. It doesn't work that way hand, an ear, a foot, those, they're not going to work by themselves. The body has to be connected to work properly. So to recap, Luke is referring to the full number or, or the multitude of those having believed in Jesus Christ as the crucified and risen Messiah, and then he makes the astonishing statement that they were of one heart and soul. Think about that. One heart and and soul. The Greek literally says they were of heart and soul one. What does that mean? What does it mean that they're of one heart and soul? I, I got a little bit of homework, okay? This is for anybody who just, who, uh, most of you are probably like, I don't have time. But if you have time and you just want to know a random fact, Judah, <laughs> you're, you're good at the random facts. Uh, and if you find out, please share it with me, by the way. I don't know if y'all would believe the number of music albums that are titled Heart and Soul. I started looking it up, and I was like, I don't know if anybody's ever counted them. But there are so many. You know, you got, you got the single from T'Pau, all the way, you know, you got Barry White. And I mean, there's, there's all these different people that have heart and soul. So it's apparently a pretty common expression, but what in the world does it mean? We use it all the time. What does it mean? So we're going to see what the language of Scripture can reveal to us. Okay, this, There's some info here. Some of this is from talking to uh, my dad, who's really well-versed in, uh, in, in the biblical languages. It's also from reading Strong's, and there's a, some word helps you can look up. So this is not my information. This is from just stuff that I've looked up. So I'm, I'm going to share this with you. The Greek word translated heart is cardia. Cardia. And if you didn't catch that, okay, which most of you probably did, that's where we get our word cardiac, you know, cardiologist, yada, yada. That, that comes from this word. But biblically, okay, it's nearly always used to refer to thoughts or emotions. Sometimes it's analogous to, to the mind. In fact, it's very similar to the Hebrew word labe, which, which is in reference to the inner man, the mind, the will, the heart. And in fact, I was told that there is not a Hebrew word specifically for mind. Which is why Jesus added to love the Lord with all your mind when he was translating Deuteronomy into Greek for those who are listening to him on the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? Deuteronomy leaves that word out. The, the mind is considered part of the heart in Hebrew thought. Okay? And in the Old Testament, the word heart shows up more than 800 times, but it never refers, not even once, to the blood-pumping muscle. In the New Testament, cardia is the affective center of our being, where our 
affections come from, the affective center of our being. Okay? So to boil it all down and apply it to our text, it seems as though the physical reality of the early church was that they were unified in their affections, in their inner man, their inner person. They were unified in their affections. In the next few verses, they really, they give us a fantastic picture of what this looks like in practice. But there was so much in it, I decided to split it. We're going to get into that next week. But for now, I want us to hone in on this concept, okay, of being unified in affections, of being one in heart. How many of you have ever been in a great crowd of people where everyone is fully focused and totally invested in the same thing. It's pretty rare nowadays, right? Okay, you might get a little bit of that feeling though at a really powerful worship service or, uh, or, or maybe a concert or even at a trade conference where everyone has the same you know, like-minded individual you know, thing and they're all focused on the same thing, but it's rarely, if ever, experienced, right? But when you do, when you do experience it, it takes your breath away. And speaking of breath, the, uh, that's the Greek word, that's the literal meaning of the Greek word that's translated soul here. The word is suke. And again, this is, this is from Strong's and the other sources. Suke means breath, that is, by implication, spirit, abstractly or concretely. This is not as basic as bios, which is the word, you know, we get our word biology, that means the study of, of life, of vitality. Bios can be even plants, okay? That just means life in general. And, and suke is not as, as purely spirit-oriented as the word pneuma, which is where we, the Holy Spirit is the pneumatos hagias, okay? So, so that's, that's not as purely spiritual as pneuma. In the Old Testament, the word suke correlates with the Hebrew word, I'll bet Dana knows, nefesh, yeah? Nefesh, which means a living being. Such as when, when God created Adam from the soil and breathed life into him. Scripture says Adam became a nefesh. Okay? So a soul, in the biblical sense, a soul is, is a combination of the body and spirit. It is a sentient physical presence. Okay? Even animals sometimes in Scripture are referred to as souls. So it's your body and spirit together being able to, to, to be physically present. Human beings are often referred to as souls, both in the Old and the New Testaments. So if being one in heart is being unified in affections, I think it could be fair to say that being in one's soul would manifest as being unified in direction. Okay, And here's what I mean by that. We're not just emotionally on the same page, but our total being is involved. In other words, we're not up in the stands cheering for the players on the field. We're down on the field, right? We're blocking. We're carrying the ball. We're trying to kill the quarterback <laughs> of the other team. We're, we're on the same team, and we're all on the field playing. We're pushing one direction side by side, not the band. <laughs> we're pushing all in the same direction side by side. And this type of connection really is, is sorely lacking in, in our hyper-individualistic culture. And I'm not, I'm not trying to put anyone in particular on the spot here except maybe myself. But, but how often do we hear of a need or a struggle that's going on with one of our brothers and we'll say a prayer for him and we'll hope a situation works out but we forget about it moments later. 
it fits right into what you were talking about in the, I, I don't think that was an accident. It was a God incidence, right? That's just what you're talking about in our prayer time. We, we sometimes, we don't fully invest, you know what I mean? And, it, and it's sad. It's sad that we don't invest any more than that. A few minutes of our thoughts and, and just a few minutes and then, and then you, you, you go on to thinking about whatever other stress you've got going on in your life or whatever, you know, candy crush you're playing on your phone or whatever. And it, it's sad. And I have to ask this question. How is that different? I'm going to say it's not very different. But how is that different from that stupid and shallow solidarity that leads corporations, you know, to, mm, to put rainbows on everything last month? You know? I mean, that's not, they don't really care. You know, it, it, it's, a, it's not sincere. It's more like, I got your back, bro. Way back here. You know? Mm-mm. That's not what it means to be in one heart and soul. There's a great example in scripture, though, of being one in heart and soul. And I, I want to share that with you. This is from 1 Samuel 14. Uh, <clears throat> just, just listen. I'm going to read it. Uh, One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. So he just like, hey, bro. Let's go fight the other guys by ourselves. <laughs> Remember, he's part of an army. So, but he's just thinking, I'm, I'm going to go check things out and see what's happening. So within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, which is a, a group of people that are just kind of standing out like, like they're watching over things and, and trying to make sure that you know, the enemy doesn't cross over onto their side. So he's coming over. There's a rocky crag on the one side, a rocky crag on the other side. Jonathan said to his young man who carried his armor, Come. Let us go over to the, the garrison of those uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, and nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Amen to that, right? And the armor bearer says, says to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. So he handed Jonathan all of his armor, and then he pulled out a lawn chair and a Pepsi, and he sat down to watch. <laughs> no, that is not what he did. Okay, then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we'll show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come up to you, well, then we'll stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. Oh, sorry, wait until we come to you. But if they say, Come up to us, we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be a sign to us. Now, I don't necessarily recommend using this approach if you're ever in battle, Okay. But it worked for them, okay? So both of them, not one of them, both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, <laughs> Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we'll show you a thing. I think it's funny. C come here, we're going to show you something. <laughs> and Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet. I think of, of that scene from, uh, what is that movie? The Princess Bride, where the dread pirate Roberts is climbing up and the other guy's just sitting there waiting for him to get to the top. And he finally tosses him a rope. But anyway, so he climbs up with his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. And the Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And this, this act of courage ends up routing the Philistines. And it's a, it's a great story, even if it's a little iffy to base your, your battle strategy on whether someone invites you to fight them. I don't know about that. But, but the coolest part to me is just how loyal 
the armor bearer is. Do whatever's in your heart. I'm with you heart and soul. That indicates not just solidarity, but physical presence. The armor bearer took the same risks as Jonathan did. He trusted in the Lord and in his friend. He climbed up to meet the Philistines. He engaged in combat. That is an example that we can look to for an understanding of what it means to be of one heart and soul. It means being absolutely committed to one another. Oh, that's it? Oh, no problem, right? <laughs> Easier said than done. Easier said than done. It's a lofty-sounding ideal, and it's definitely easier said than done, and certainly not the way our society operates. But if we really think about, listen, listen, if we really think about what love is, isn't being absolutely committed to one another a pretty good description? I think that's a, a pretty powerful expression of love. And it's an amazing boon to our witness, too. You know, earlier today, we, we read a couple passages from John's gospel. And I don't know if you remember the, the very profound statement that Jesus made at the Last Supper. He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So, so let's put this together, okay? If the early believers were, they were all of one heart and soul, which Luke said, and if being one heart and soul means being absolutely committed to one another, and if being committed to one another means having love for one another, stick with me, then according to what Jesus said, all people would know that they were his disciples. Right? The early church would have a reputation for being disciples of Jesus. Did they? 100% they did. They absolutely did. If you read the end of Acts chapter 2, it, it tells us that they had the favor of all the people. You know, we see more evidence as we continue in Acts and, until it gets to the point where they start really persecuting people. But the, the less pleasant question now is if believers love for one another is how all people will know that we are disciples of Jesus. Do you think that the world today has any clue about the church? You know, the early church was unified through their faith in Jesus, but they were also unified in their affections. And they were unified in their direction. And this unity was evident because anybody could see that they were absolutely committed to one another. Are we? I mean, are we any of these things, right? Are, are all believers today of one heart and soul? Are we unified? Now, th this sounds like a rhetorical question, but, but let me ask you to wait to answer that. Let's read a few verses from our opening passage this morning, okay? This, Jesus, he's praying, he's praying to the Father for his disciples the night that he is arrested, okay? And he asks the Lord to make his disciples one as he and the Father are one. And shortly after that, he says, I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Pause there. That's you. And that's me. 
We are those who would believe because of the word the apostles preached. Jesus prayed for you and he prayed for me. And, if, and, and we get to read his high priestly prayer for us right here in scripture. I, I think that's pretty awesome, personally. And if, if, the prayer, if the prayer of a righteous man has great power as, as it's working, or if you're like me and you memorize that in the NIV, you know, the, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Does it get any more righteous than Jesus Christ? So can it get any more powerful and effective than Jesus Christ? I'm going to say no. He prayed for us. If, if that doesn't shake you up, check your pulse, okay? We're looking a little sleepy this morning. He, he prayed for those who would believe in him through the disciples' words, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Again, the whole point, the whole point of this unity that he's praying for is that God might be glorified. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, so that they may be one, even as we are one, I am them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Okay, so, so again, if Jesus prayed that we would all be one, do you think the Father said no? Okay. Now we could argue that, I mean, because uh, I'll tell you, you can make a decent argument <laughs> that God didn't answer another of his prayers the way that Jesus kind of hoped he would later that very night, right? But Jesus still said, not my will, but your will be done, right? But you, you could say, well, what about the incredible dysfunction in the professing church? I mean, wouldn't that be evidence that Jesus' prayer for unity wasn't granted? But I think that there is a spiritual reality of unity in the body of Christ that exists even when the physical reality doesn't. In the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul wrote, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope. That belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one immersion or baptism. One God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. That's a lot of ones. In fact, my father pointed out to me, that's seven ones. And if you're into the Bible number stuff, seven's the number of perfection, right? So that's seven ones right there. So while the church may appear to be fractured, the spiritual reality of unity is that every believer has in common one body, which is the body of Christ, that's, that's the, the true invisible church, okay? I'm not just talking about everybody who professes. I'm talking about the true church. There's one spirit, and that is the Holy Spirit, okay? The Holy Spirit that indwells and sanctifies every true believer. There is one hope, and that's the hope of eternal life by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And there's one Lord, you know, which is Jesus Christ himself. There's one faith which is the faith that was handed down by the apostles in the scriptures. There's one baptism, okay, which is th that of the Holy Spirit connected to the ordinance that Christ himself gave us. And then there is one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. Again, that's a lot of ones. 
And even if we aren't all on the same page, true believers have more in common than we don't. Then why, the question is, why in the physical reality do, do we see so much that's different from the spiritual reality that's proclaimed in the word? It's a good question. Let's be realistic about it, okay? The gate is small and the path is narrow, right? We know that, right? Because Jesus told us. And wide is the road and, and, and broad is the path that leads to destruction. There are many professing Christians, even right here in McKinney, Texas, and surely some are sincere in that profession and they're born-again believers, but a lot of goats go to churches, right? I'm not talking about the chicken place either. A lot of goats are in church every Sunday. The Lord knows those who are his, 2 Timothy 2.19 says, and those who name the name of the Lord must depart from unrighteousness. Amen? That's two sides of a coin. The Lord knows those who are his, and those who the name, the name of the Lord must depart from unrighteousness. So if people haven't repented, they are Christians in name only. I need to make sure we're all on the same page. person who says, well, I said the prayer back and whatever. If, if you haven't repented, you are not a Christian. You have to have repentant faith. That doesn't mean that your life is automatically going to be perfect uh, by any stretch of the imagination. I made a video a long time ago where there's this guy who comes out and he's walking into the baptistry with the youth pastor. And he's like, yeah, and he's got the leather jacket and everything. And he goes into the water and then we cut to where he comes up and he's wearing wings and he's, he's got a little halo. And he's like, thank you, brother. And it, 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 that's what we wish it were like, right? But it doesn't work that way, does it? No, that's not how it works. But there will be a change. There will be repentance. So, on top of the goats in the congregations, some churches don't even preach the gospel. There are entire churches where the gospel is not preached. It's exchanged for a social gospel or some other false gospel. And Paul's very clear in Galatians 1. Verse 8 and 9, because he repeats himself. He says, if anybody says to you a gospel other than the one that we already delivered, may he be eternally condemned. So that's really important because true unity can never be at the expense of indispensable truth. You know, the gospel is the, the power of God for the salvation of those who believe. That's what the word says in Romans 1.16. So, so false believers and false churches can sow seeds of dysfunction and disunity. But here's where it gets muddy, okay? So can saved people. Saved people can sow seeds of dysfunction and disunity sometimes because we still sin sometimes, don't we? We still cause disunity. You know, later in the book of Acts, we're going to see that, that Paul actually got into a sharp disagreement. That means fight uh, with his, his best friend, a guy named Barnabas, that he was missionary partners with, right? And guess what? They split. They went their separate ways. They eventually reconciled, but that was a, that was a big deal. That was a big break. But that doesn't overrule the, the spiritual reality of unity that they had with each other in the midst of their fight. It's just like a married couple. Listen, you are one flesh. 
Even if you're in the middle of a fight, you are still one flesh. That spiritual reality of unity is still there, okay? And a believer, listen, if you're a believer, you don't cease to be a son of God every time you stumble into sin. Do you grasp that? Do your kids stop being your kids when they disobey you? There is a spiritual reality to unity in the body. And yet when the Holy Spirit is really active, there, there's often this, this beautiful, albeit unfortunately it's temporary too often, but there's this beautiful physical reality that accompanies the unity that exists in the spirit. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And the early church had it for a little while. And it was, a, it was a glorious example to the world of what Jesus' followers can be. And so, friends, listen, e even if we're not living in it as well as we should, true believers in Jesus are unified in Christ and through our faith in Christ. But, but, but let's all do what we can to help the physical reality match the spiritual reality. Okay? Again, not at the expense of truth. Never at the expense of truth. But when there are others who believe in the gospel, who are in the word, let's be unified. If you can't look across the aisle at people in the church and say, that is my brother and my sister, work on your heart. Ask the Holy Spirit to convict you because we are unified in the spiritual sense. And we should do every, we should strive to make the physical match the spiritual reality. I mean, imagine, imagine how amazing our witness would be if we were all of one heart and soul again. Just, just picture that in your mind. What would that look like? We're going to get into that in the next couple of weeks. But that, that's the point here, okay? That's what I believe we're supposed to, to, to strive to agonize toward when we read this passage. And I think we need to believe it can happen. We need to believe it can happen. It's happened before. And if God decrees, it can happen again. You know, we ought to pray for that blessing. We ought to ask the Lord for, for this uh, powerful outpouring of his love to be revealed through us. You know, we can ask him to, to give us the strength and the faithfulness to be totally, absolutely committed to him and to each other. You know, Jesus said, he said it more than once, if we pray in his name, and we know that that, that doesn't mean just saying magic words at the end of, the, of the, the prayer. That means praying something according to his will. He says, we will receive what we ask for. Right? Right? Okay, and if Jesus prayed, listen, this is important. This is what we're wrapping up with. If Jesus prayed that we would be one as he and the Father are one, we have every reason to believe that that is his will. So we should pray for that. Amen? We should pray for this. So, so let's pray for that right now. Father God, I ask in Jesus' precious name, Lord, that you will make the physical reality the same as the spiritual reality. We are one in Christ. Help us, Lord, to be unified in our affections and unified in direction. And we ask, Father, that you will give us the ability to, to see what you are doing and to be faithfully walking in that, Lord. We ask that you will help us to, to be totally, absolutely committed to you and to each other. Help us, Father, to recognize that we are brothers and sisters, that we are one body. 
When one part of the body hurts, let the rest of the body hurt. And when one part of the body rejoices, may the rest of the body rejoice with it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to sing a song in, in just, just a moment, and it's going to be our invitation song. And so first, this is for anyone who believes in Jesus. And if you believe in Jesus and you want to obey his commands to repent and confess him publicly as Lord and be baptized and to walk in obedience to Christ, this is for you. Okay? But if you've already done those things, then we're also open for you to come up and, and just have someone pray with you.